Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, or of lambs, or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of the convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assemblies. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am wary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is an an admonishment against the people of Judah. Um, And it had some pretty strong language. If you were listening, um, he even starts out by calling them Sodom and Gomorrah, as who he compares them to. And what is God's problem with these people of Judah? It's not just uh, their sin. Um, He talks about them doing evil and injustice and and oppression in in their society. But he he also talks about how they act when they come to his court. You see, they were still uh, participating in evil and then participating um, in all the sacrifices and the celebrations and the prayers. They were calling out to God uh, with many prayers. And then on the backside... They're they're oppressing widows. They're hypocrites, right? I mean, that's what I hear here. They have an empty ritual. They do something because, well, yeah, that's what God said to do. We're going to do it, but we're not going to let it interfere with the rest of our lives. Okay, and so Paul kind of touches on this a little bit in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we come to a time of ritual this morning. Something that those of us who are regular attendees here, we do every week. We come here, we listen to a meditation, and then we partake of this meal together. What happens when we come here in an unworthy manner? What happens when, like I've been guilty of, you come and you listen and then you take the communion and you're done and you walk out the door and you just forget everything. You just forget the old leather socks. You just forget what he's done for you. You just forget your repentance. But see, God is just like he was seeking Judah there at the end. And he said, come, let's be together. 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Just like we sing about, we can come, and this may not be on the slide, but we can come, and instead of just performing, we can walk out that door with renewed worship by the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and then salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Good morning. Thank you for all of you for being together as the the body. And uh, I'm just this is a fun time of year. I, I love the the time of year where we we have different breaks in school, and so we see some different college students back with us today. And so that's a lot of fun. Different people are traveling here and there to be with family. And so I'm thankful that uh, each and every one of you are here together. And as we continue to go through the, the gospel according to Mark, we're in chapter 7 this morning. The title of today's message is Twisting Tradition. Twisting Tradition. There, there's some interesting traditions out there, and I looked several up. And one of the ones that kind of kind of sp- uh, sparked my attention and got, grabbed my attention was that the fact that, I don't know if you knew this, but there's an estimated 3.6 million Japanese families that treat themselves to a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken for Christmas. I, I didn't know this. And in fact, I guess in 1974, the American fast food chain unveiled their Kentucky for Christmas marketing campaign in Japan. And the story goes that KFC spread the idea that it's a time-honored Western tradition to celebrate Christmas with fried chicken. And although only about 1% of people in Japan identify as Christian, there was an exotic appeal to the campaign. It really took off. And so today, the tradition is so popular, it's highly recommended to place Christmas Day orders well ahead of time for your Kentucky Fried Chicken in Japan. And, and I'm sure many of you have your own holiday traditions. Maybe it's, it's going out and, and looking at Christmas lights. Maybe it's having eggnog or having uh, a certain dish. Or maybe it's uh, when, where you go and who you meet together with as, as family. And these traditions, sometimes we, we don't want to budge on those traditions. Like we're always going to watch the Grinch on this day before, you know, that sort of thing. I don't know. But it's interesting to me how we get some of our traditions 
Uh, it reminds me of a story of a mother who was teaching her daughter the family recipe for making a whole baked ham. And maybe you've heard this story. I don't know. It was the very best ham anybody had ever had. So they always followed the recipe carefully. They prepared the marinade, scored the skin, put in the clothes, and then came a step the daughter didn't understand. Why do we cut off the ends of the ham? She said, doesn't that make it dry out? You know, I don't know, said the mother. That's just the way grandma taught me. We should call grandma and ask. And so they call grandma and ask. And why, why do we cut off the ends of the ham? Is it to let the marinade in or, or what? And no, said grandma. To be honest, I cut the ends off because that's how my mother taught me. I added the marinade step later because I was worried about the ham drying out. So let's call great-grandma and ask her. So they called the assisted living facility where great-grandma was living. And the old woman listened to their questions and then said, Oh, for land's sakes, I cut off the ends because I didn't have a pan big enough for a whole ham. I mean, sometimes that's how our traditions end up, don't they? We don't really know where they came from, and I'm not necessarily saying traditions are all bad, but as we look at today's verses in chapter 7 of Mark, what I am saying is, just like anything, if we allow those things, maybe traditions or other things, to take priority in our life over God, then that is something that is bad. If we care more about our own personal preferences or over the, the idea of reaching the loss and, and the mission of the church and what we're supposed to be doing, then we're really missing the point. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were twisting tradition and missing the point. And how many times maybe have you heard, okay, everyone, wash your hands and get up to the table for dinner. Anybody have heard that growing up? Okay, yeah, all right. And, and again, when you heard that growing up, it wasn't something that was most likely probably a religious kind of thing that you were dealing with. No, it's, we wash our hands because it's one of those things where it's more of hygiene for cleanliness. We don't want to eat food with our hands that are dirty. And so my guess is, some of you probably made it to the dinner table without washing their hands once or twice in your life. I know I have, all right. And we, as you look at what's taking place here in these verses, there's this idea of washing hands in this gospel reading. And, and the Pharisees and the scribes are following Jesus, and they're trying to do whatever they can to trip Jesus up, to find something to accuse him of. And Jesus and his disciples are being accused here in, in Mark chapter 7 of eating bread with defiled hands. Basically, the disciples came to the dinner table without washing their hands. And if you're thinking about that, man, that seems really petty, doesn't it? Well, you're right. It is petty. But there's really an underlining uh, current that's taking place here. And I want us to look at what's really going on here from these verses. Will you pray with me as we continue? Father, we desire for you to speak boldly into our lives. And so I pray that if there are some things, there's, if there are some things that need to be changed in our hearts, in our minds, things that we need to be convicted of this morning, I pray that you would reveal those to us, that we would look to you for wisdom and direction. And God, I thank you again for your word, the way that it speaks boldly into our lives. May that take place this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. 
Amen. If you are willing and able this morning, will you uh, stand with me as we turn to Mark chapter 7? We're going to read verses 1 through 13 together. It's on the screen, and if you want to follow along in your own Bibles, that would be great as well. It says, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might have otherwise have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do Many things like that. You may be seated. It's awesome how God works through his Holy Spirit. Appreciate Brad uh, and his uh, meditations this morning. And it kind of ties right in with what we're looking at here in Mark chapter 7, 1 through 13. And there's a lot of commotion that's taking place with Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees and the scribes. And there's all this you know, commotion. There's three other C words that I want us to look at as we go down through this that will kind of help us understand the passage. And then it also kind of help us to be better disciples of Jesus. And the first one is this idea of confrontation. So there's this confrontation that takes place in verses 1 through 5. And then there's this condemnation that takes place in verses 6 through 9. And then there's a correction in verses 10 through 13. Confrontation, condemnation, and correction. And so we're going to have to buckle up because things are going to get a little messy when we have this head-on collision between Jesus and kind of the spiritual, the religious status quo at the time. Jesus is not willing to back down, and he's willing to stand up for what is right, even in the face of these legalists in verses 1 through 5. And the first truth that I want us to look at that I really think is coming out from these verses that I think we can also look at in our own lives is this idea of legalists love other legalists, okay? And we we saw earlier in chapter 3, verse 22 of Mark, is this idea of those that are coming from Jerusalem out to find an opportunity to try to trap Jesus, to, to trip him up. And it's interesting, you have these Pharisees and these scribes that oftentimes don't always get along, but 
They're joining together here because they have a common interest, which is trying to trap Jesus. And in fact, the word Pharisees, they're literally this idea of separated ones. They're the holier than thou. They're the ones that look down on everyone else. And then you have the scribes that are the interpreters of the law. One of their jobs was to copy and preserve the scriptures. And so these Pharisees and these scribes, they're, they're religious experts of the day, and they gather together to team up against Jesus. We emphasize the importance of getting together to honor Jesus. These guys were getting together to be against Jesus. And they, in fact, that these men, they, they had a two-day trip that they took from Jerusalem, which again was kind of the center of all the, the religious you know, elite. And they make this two-day trip in order to make sure they get out where Jesus is at. And, and they weren't there to, you know, perform God's will. They weren't following God's will. No, they're, they're there to try to, again, see what they can accuse Jesus and his followers of. And so one commentator refers to them as legalistic, self-righteous, hypocritical, phony members of the religious establishment. And so legalists, they, they love other legalists. Legalists look for lawbreakers. And did you know that if you look hard enough, you can always find something to get upset about? Did you know that? I, I don't know if you've ever seen that in, in relationships or with other people, but you, you know, if you look hard enough, you can find something to get upset about. And these Pharisees and scribes, they're not only gathering together, but they're gathering together to play the game of gotcha with the disciples here. And they want us to find out, they can find something that, hey, that's not quite right. And we see in verse 2, it says, They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were unclean, that is unwashed. Now, does this mean that uh, the disciples were practicing bad hygiene by not washing before they ate? Well, no, that's not really what's taking place here. And I love how Mark helps his readers understand more about these verses in verse 3 and 4. And do you see this, the parentheses there in, in the passage? It's to, again, give some insight into the, into the cultural background to, for those who are not Jews, okay? And so it says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. And when I thought about this idea of washing and how you know, ceremonial they were with this, how religious they were with this, it reminded me of when my son, who's now 10, Brady, uh, was born six weeks premature and spent time in the NICU. Uh, every time you went into the NICU, you had, you had to wash your hands. And it wasn't like just a nice little... You know, wash your, okay, and you're out of there. No, it was like you had to sing a song in your mind and, or at least time yourself. And they had these little prepackaged uh, little washer scrubber things with little bristles on them. And you're supposed to wash under your nails and you wash your palm on the backside. And you're supposed to wash up your arm to your elbow. And you're like, all right, I'm ready to go into surgery now, right, type of thing. You felt like a doctor going into the, the ER. And, and no, that was just to go into the NICU. And if you forgot something after you go into the NICU, you had to go back out. And you're like, hey, I, I was just in here. And like, no, you got to wash your hands again. 
you kidding me? It's like, so there's this like a religious ceremony of washing my hands. And that's essentially what they're talking about here. They, they cupped their hands a certain way. They poured the water a certain way. And it was just this religious ceremony of washing your hands before you eat. And I'm not saying, you know, that it's, it's a bad thing to wash your hands before you eat. In fact, I probably should do that a little bit more often than I do. In fact, I, I thought about that and, and going to restaurants. And I don't oftentimes take the time to go to the bathroom and wash my hands after especially touching a menu, some of those kind of things. But it's interesting here that the Bible never says that everyone must do this. In fact, as you look through Scripture, the only kind of hand-washing, uh, feet-washing thing that you're going to find is in Exodus chapter 30, verse 19. And this reference was for the priests to wash their hands and feet before entering the tent of meeting. And so what began as something good became a tradition that ended up binding and blinding the people to what really mattered. John MacArthur talks about how these traditions of the elders were eventually put into the Mishnah, which was a collection of oral traditions. Incidentally, the Mishnah has over 35 pages devoted to washing alone. And these regulations were then put in the Gemara, which was like a commentary. And then the, the Mishnah and the Gemara were then combined to form the Talmud. Again, human traditions, oral traditions that were made up by other humans. And you think, well, that's a lot. But there's, there were certain places like the rabbis in Babylon. They created a Talmud four times larger than the Jerusalem Talmud. So it just they kept stacking one tradition on top of the next to the next to the next. And notice that these religious leaders not only washed their hands, but they observed many other traditions. Many other traditions. They focused on cleaning cups and kettles as well as their pots and pans. And legalists even lecture the Lord. If you look in these verses, serving as judge and jury, these hypocritical holy men ask a question meant to discredit the disciples and Jesus himself in verse 5 says, so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And I wonder how many of us at that time, if we lived back then, would be in the same boat as some of these Pharisees and scribes. They're like, that's not how we do it at our church, Jesus, you know. Hey, you're kind of outside the lines of what's normal Christianity. And I, I, I wonder, are we falling into some of those traps. And so there's this condemnation from Jesus back to these Pharisees and scribes in verses 6 through 9. I love that Jesus, he doesn't answer their question about tradition, but instead, right to Scripture he goes. Verse 6, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. And then quoting the Greek translation of Isaiah 29, verse 13, Jesus directly applies this stinging scripture to them in the second half of verse 6 and verse 7, where he says, As it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And I just thought about, man, how heart-wrenching would that be? Can you imagine Jesus coming in here and saying to Paradise Valley Christian Church, you're worshiping me in vain. You're, you, you, you proclaim that you, you know, believe and, and that you praise me with your mouth, 
but it's, it's all in vain. Your actions don't represent that same thing. Your hearts are not where they need to be. And so as I look at this, I, I wonder, what do we hear from Jesus here? What do we learn? And there's several things, four things that are really quick. The first is always go to Scripture and apply it to your life. And that's what he does. He, he has this, this right away goes to Isaiah. And I think about, you know, me and my preaching, and I want some people to say, Charles always says this. He always says, the Bible says, right? I would love for you guys, like, if there's one key line that Charles always says, it's always the Bible says, because I really think that's where we always have to go back to. And that's what Jesus did. He, he applies the, the passage from Isaiah to them directly, these, these people that are playing spiritual charades. You also see from Jesus this idea of resisting the, the idea of adding or subtracting from Scripture. And, of course, we see that from Revelation chapter 22, verse 18, as a warning. Revelation twenty-two eighteen 18 says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. See, we're not to add or subtract from Scripture. We need to take it as it is. It's easy for us as, as Christians to say or sing something and then not really mean it, just as what Bradley was talking about. It's easy to go through the, the motions of taking communion, but does it really have an impact on our lives? Do our lives match what comes out of our mouths? And the fourth thing I see here even with Jesus is that Scripture must always take supremacy over tradition. And so many religions out there, they kind of put tradition and Scripture either on the same level or at times they put tradition ahead of Scripture. We have to ask ourselves, is the Bible the ultimate source for how we live our lives? Is the Bible the ultimate source of how we function as a church? We can't let our preferences or our traditions have more weight than God's word. When we keep that right perspective, it's going to help us navigate change. And I believe we're a congregation on the cusp of a lot of change because this church is growing. And with growth, there comes change, just like a baby. Uh, I'm loving the fact that my baby girl, who's uh, 16 months, she still doesn't have teeth. Berkeley, she walks around gum, you know, toothless, you know, and she looks so cute just with her toothless smile. But eventually, she will get teeth, I think. All right, and so there's going to be change that takes place. And as a congregation, a church body grows, there's going to be change. And sometimes that change is like, oh, that's not the way I would do it. That's not how I want it done. That's not my preference. And as we grow as a church, we have to keep in mind, as long as we stay true to God's word, then all of the other things, they're just other things. They're just preferences. They're just traditions. They're just things that we maybe used to do. Things that maybe have, have worked well in the past and maybe not so much right now. We have to be willing to shelf different ministries in order for other new ministries to begin. You know, there, there's going to be times where there's going to be change. And for some of you, the, the hair on the back of your neck kind of coming on, you know, standing on end. And it's like, oh, I don't like that. I don't like, I don't like change. Th them's there fighting words, right? But it shouldn't be that way. In fact, to make sure that they and we don't miss his message, Jesus then turns from Isaiah and applies it to each of them personally. Listen to the word you in verse 8. It says, you 
have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Is that us? Do we care more about the commands of God? Or are we worried about what type of music we should sing, contemporary or hymns, instruments or no instruments? Should we have pews or chairs? We got both. That's working out great for us right now, all right? Should we, should we dress up or should we dress down? Uh, I've even heard churches fight over what color to paint the walls. People fighting over where to sit because you know that is where I have always sit. That never happens here, though, I'm, I'm sure, all right? How long the church service should be? What time church service should begin? What the order of the church service should be? Do we hold on to to the traditions of men, or do we care more about the commands of God? Verse 9 says, they've not only left God's commands, but they have actually rejected them. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And the phrase, fine way, is like Jesus is saying they've done a nice job of slicing away the scriptures so they can savor what is important to them. These unholy hypocrites begin by confronting Jesus, and then that quickly turns into Jesus condemning them. And in verses 10 through 13, we see how Jesus corrects them and us. See, Jesus is not done exposing their legalistic laws and hypocritical beliefs and behavior. Notice again that he bases everything he says on scripture and that's what we strive to do here at PV when someone asks me why Paradise Valley Christian Church believes that baptism by immersion is part of the salvation process I quickly say because that's what the Bible teaches if I can always go back to scripture and share with you from the Bible why we believe what we believe then that's our goal we can go to the Bible and share with someone that and teach them that, you know, in order to be saved, you have to believe. That's what scripture teaches. In order to be saved, you have to repent and no longer continue down the path you're heading down. That's in the Bible. And we can teach people that you, you must confess that Jesus is the Son of God and, and be willing to confess him as your Lord. That's in the Bible. Okay? It, in order to be saved, you, you must be immersed into Christ. That's what it teaches, to clothe yourself with Christ and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of your sins. That's in the Bible, okay? Those are things that I don't need to just make up because I can go to Scripture. And that we need to stand firm until the end to be saved. That's in the Bible. You can't just one time make a decision then hope for the best. No. You have to stand firm. We always have to go back to what does Scripture say. And again, there's going to be different takes on different passages and we're going to work on that together. And I know for sure I'm not always right. But my hope is, is that all of us together are going to God's word for our final authority on how to live. And Jesus always went to scripture, and so must we. Look at verse 10, where Jesus quotes the fifth commandment. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And of course, this is found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, and is stated in a kind of a positive way. Honor your father and your mother and then one chapter later in exodus chapter 21 verse 17 and again in leviticus 20 verse 9 jesus quotes the negative side of the same command anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death 
And I can't prove this, but my guess is that the Pharisees, as they're hearing Jesus and these scribes, they're kind of nodding their head in agreement, right? Yeah, that's right. Honor your father and mother. That's one, of the, that's one of the laws, right? And Jesus then exposes their hypocrisy in verses 11 through 13 with the phrase, but you say. This is what God says, but you guys say this. They were like those who today they say, you know, there's people that you might know today that say, well, I, I know that what the Bible says, but God just wants me to be happy. Uh, actually, if you hear yourself say the word but after anything that you have just read from Scripture, like if you read the Bible and then you say but, that's a red flag. There's alarms because anything you're going to say then is going to contradict then what the Bible is saying. We have to be very careful. We have to be very careful that we don't say, hey, this is how it is. But is that what the Bible says? Look at verse 11. If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God. And Mark inserts some parentheses again to explain a, a common Jewish custom at the time. The word Corbin means given to God. And here's what's going on. If someone pronounced something Corbin, it became sacred and therefore deferred a deferred gift that was pledged to the temple. But in many cases, it, it never really took place. It was never really given and as I thought about this uh, concept, it was kind of a, a tricky way to get around this, this command of honoring your father and mother, making sure they're taken care of, even into their old age. And people at this time, they would, they would say, well, this is Corbin. This is set aside for the Lord. Well, I'm never really going to give it to God, but it's set aside for the Lord. It, it would be kind of like if... Uh, Maybe your parents, as they're getting older, they, their vehicle breaks down, and you have a couple vehicles at your house, and you're like, I declare them Corbin. That way, I don't actually have to lend my car out or give one of my vehicles to my parents because, you know, the, I, I want to keep both my cars. And you're like, well, that's really rude. Well, that's what was taking place here. They, they were declaring things Corbin in order to sneakily get around the law the, the commandment of honoring your father and your mother. And, and again, it, it applied to savings accounts. Like, oh, my savings account is Corbin. It's, it's, I declare it Corbin, dedicated to the Lord. I, I'm never really going to give that to God because no one's really following up on that. But I can tell my parents, hey, I'm sorry, I can't help you out because my savings account is Corbin. And, and that's what's taking place here. And if you pick it up in verse 12 again, it says, Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. And notice the, the word again that's used here, you. They not only gave people an out if they didn't want to care for their parents, they went a step further and actually prohibited them from doing anything for them. And in verse 13, Jesus gives a, a stinging accusation to these spiritual fakes. He says, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition, that you have handed down. And the word nullify was used to annul a contract and meant to cancel or revoke something that was binding. Do you see what they're doing? Their tradition was wiping out the word of God. And this wasn't the only thing time this, 
that this kind of thing was happening, Jesus said, and you do many things like that. This was just one example of what was taking place. And again, he's saying you. And it's easy for us to get after these legalistic hypocrites, but I wonder what this passage might be saying to us as a church or to us as individuals. What kinds of things does Paradise Valley Christian Church do out of tradition that we make more important than what Scripture says? What is it that you hold to that you've elevated above the Word of God? We have to make sure we aren't twisting tradition to make it all about us. Because when it's all about us, we're missing the point. But when we make it all about God and what he wants from us, then that's when God can really begin to work in us and through us to grow his kingdom. And so as the praise team comes, what God wants from you is all of you. He wants every aspect of your life, even the areas of tradition in your life. Christianity is ultimately not a matter of traditions. Salvation is not based off of what you do or what you don't do because you can't earn your way to heaven. Christianity is is about what has been done for you. It's not spelled D-O, but rather D-O-N-E. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It's complete. The price has been paid. The the debt has been erased. And you are complete in Christ. And you are clean. But Jesus doesn't force that on you. You have a choice. You get to choose to accept that free gift of grace. And so this morning, if you need to accept God's free gift of grace, of forgiveness, to go all in with Jesus, we'd invite you to come. Will you stand with us as we sing? So I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down I'd like to share about Dave. Okay, I can do that. And exchange it someday for a crown. Will you pray with me, God, this morning? Man, the old rugged cross that gives us so much hope for eternity. Something that happened so long ago and yet it is still true today. It has power today in our lives. And I am so grateful, God, for what... You were willing to do for us by sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. God, I pray that we would be willing to accept that. That we would not allow our own preferences, what we want in our lives, but what you want for us to to be number one priority. And so, God, continue to work on each and every one of us as we grow and mature in our faith in you. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. You may be seated. At this time, I'm going to have Joyce Mondel come up, and she's going to give an update concerning Dave. If you want to stand at the pulpit, please. Oh, by the way, she's going to cry. 
Let's give God a round of applause again. Again, that's Dave Mondel. Continue to keep him in your prayers. Uh, he is progressing in the right direction, so we're praising God for that. A, a couple other prayer uh, concerns we've been lifting up. Gail Kerwin uh, is another one that uh, we've been praying for her and a kidney transplant as well as a liver transplant. That did take place this last week, so just continue to lift up Gail Kerwin in your prayers that she would be able uh, to completely recover and keep the, the family of uh, Ben and Amanda McCarlson. Amanda's pa father passed away, and his services will be tomorrow. So keep, uh, again, the Mike Crow family, and that's Amanda McCarlson's dad, in your prayers. Uh, I do want to give God praise this past week. Uh, each week there's things that take place, whether it's the small groups, Bible studies, men's group, our Wednesday night family night on, that takes place at, with the 6 o'clock supper and a went, seven o'clock classes for everyone or the the game night that happens uh, every third Friday of the month that that took place this last week um, the men's prayer breakfast that happens first and third Saturdays of the month the top of the peak for those 50 and older that happened this last Saturday a lot of a lot of neat things going on here part of this congregation if you're not plugged into something I'd encourage you to find out uh, I would I, I'm I'm hearing rumors that not everybody uh, pays attention to the, all the announcements and so make sure to read through all these at least one time and then just highlight the ones that apply to you but I do want to mention again today as the last day we want to turn in those Operation Christmas Child boxes as well as those who have been donated for the Thanksgiving boxes of blessings thank you very much for those who are willing to do that those need to be turned in today as well and on the inside of your bulletin the Christmas Express Children's program the celebration potluck that'll be happening here uh, in December we want you to be aware of those things this morning will you stand as we close our time in prayer and then in song thank you for being together this morning father we thank you for all the many blessings that you pour out on us and at this time of year we re really take the time to say thank you God we we are so grateful for all that you do in our lives Father, may our gratitude to you be reflected in the choices that we make each and every day, the attitudes that we have, our hearts, our actions, our speech, everything of who we are, God, we want that to reflect of how grateful we are to you for the lives you allow us to live. And so I thank you for each one here this morning in person, maybe first-time visitors, people that are visiting for the first time in a long time. Thank you for those online. I pray that together as a church, we continue to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.